All right, thank you, Jack, for that reading. Appreciate it. And uh, could we also just uh, thank Emmy and all of the volunteers. And also this morning, we're introducing a brand new band at Redemption Arcadia. They are called Tennessee Whiskers. Congratulations to your, well, it wasn't really your opening night, but uh, yeah, thanks guys. <laughs> so good morning, we are glad that you are here. Um, Merry Christmas, um, my name is Frank. If you're new here, we're glad that you're here. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we've been going through uh, a series during this Advent season, this is the fourth of four that we're looking at. It's called The Aspects of Jesus, not a very exciting title, but the topics we've been covering have been really important and quite exciting. Uh, so before I get into that, I want to remind us or even tell us about uh, a little something. First of all, we're getting to that point in time when people are asking, what are the rules about year-end giving? When do you have to have it so I can get a tax deduction? We either have to have it in our hand by the 31st, or it needs to be postmarked by the 31st. So you could actually um, get it postmarked by then, and we could receive it after as long as we can show a postmark. So that's for year-end giving. And then um, I want to start you thinking about this early, because we had a little miscommunication around here. And so I want to make sure that you're aware of this. In the past, when we moved into this, um, this property, in the past on Marathon Sunday, which was usually that third weekend in January, uh, they would close down Camelback Road on Sunday morning. And so if those of you have been around a while, you remember we would have a, one service on that Sunday at three in the afternoon, and then we would have a, um, a, a church picnic. Bruce Brown would come and cook uh, cheeseburgers or hamburgers, if you don't like cheese, for us. And, and we'd have the bouncy houses, and it was like a church pic big church picnic. A lot of fun. We missed it last year because of COVID, because they didn't have the marathon. And then they are going to run the marathon again this year. And so we immediately got geared up to have our church picnic on, on January 16th. And then uh, somebody decided to check the route of the marathon. And they've changed the route of the marathon. It's all in Tempe now, which kind of stinks. But they're not going to have to shut down Camelback. And so we decided that we're still going to have a church picnic because we really like doing that. Um, so we're going to have our 9 and 1045 services that weekend, marathon weekend. Uh, we're not going to have the picnic, though, right after the second service. And the reason is because a lot of nap times are at that time. And so um, really, this is more, in many ways, this is more for the kids than it is for the adults. And so we're going to go ahead and have it right at 4 o'clock, from 4 to 6, on January 16th on the back grass. So please mark your calendars. It's a good time. These are my favorite hamburgers, even better than Zinburger, all year long that we get to eat, and we didn't get to eat them last year. Bruce does a really nice job with that. So mark your calendars for that. All right. So in this Advent series, we've looked at the incarnation uh, literally the enfleshment of God. We've talked about uh, sacrifice. That was the second week. Last week we talked about how that leads to a new creation for us who are in Christ. And Christ is going to come again and bring the new Jerusalem in and have everything be recreated new, restored. And today we talk about sanctification. There is actually a progression here. Incarnation, sacrifice, new creation, and then 
sanctification. And if you're wondering what the word Advent means, it, it means uh, the coming of a significant or important person or event. And that would be Jesus both the first time, which we've been celebrating, and also looking forward to the second time that he comes because he's coming again. I would ask you to have your Bibles out and have them open to that passage that Jack read. It's, it's 2 Peter chapter 3. But you don't have to look at it yet. It's going to be a few minutes before we get there, but that's the only passage you'll have to open to uh, today. So getting into this understanding of, of sanctification, Jesus certainly came to save us. So he, we talked about this last week. God created um, everything, and he created it perfect. You know, some people call it paradise. There was no sin whatsoever. And then in Genesis chapter 3, uh, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. That's the original sin. And now everything has been corrupt since then. And so God's plan, which we see as early as Genesis 3.15, was to send a Messiah, a Savior, so that people could be redeemed, delivered, uh, saved from the consequence of their sin, and be reconciled to God through the Son, uh, Jesus. And so that's the eternal goal is that we are actually going to spend eternity somewhere, all of us. The question is where? Are we going to spend it in the New Jerusalem, in heaven with, with God, or are we going to spend it separated from God uh, for eternity, which would not be a good thing? So that's the eternal goal, and he is coming again to make, it, uh, make that complete, and that's what Advent is. That's the second part of Advent that we celebrate, the anticipated return of Jesus. But Jesus also came to transform us here and now, to grow us and to give us access to wisdom and to what Francis Schaeffer once called true truth, not just your truth, but true truth, absolute truth, truth that is applied to everybody, whether we want it to be applied to us or not. So he gives us access to this growth, this transformation, this wisdom, and this truth which we desperately need for our difficult and temporal and challenging time here on earth because things are broken. And all you got to do is look around and know that things aren't right. We just know this uh, inherently. And by the way, can we just take a little rabbit trail? Can we talk just a little bit? This is going to be a downer for some of you, I know, but I want to talk about it. And I have the mic. So can we talk a little bit about how fleeting our time actually is on earth? It really is fleeting. We make such a big deal about life on earth. We do. But really, it's not even a blip on the screen when you compare it to eternity. I know it doesn't feel like a blip, but it is compared to eternity. Now, I'm not saying that life and purpose on, on earth aren't, in, aren't important. They are. And God believes that life and purpose on earth are, are important. Even God is involved in that. He values that. But let's also put things into perspective. Paul writes this about this idea that our time on earth really isn't that much. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, he writes this. And he's, and he's talking about how difficult it is to live in this world... But we have Christ in order to do it. So he's talking about how, you know, we're jars of clay, but internally we're empowered by the filling of the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ. And so he sort of sums all that up by, by writing this. So, because Christ is in us, we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He calls our time on earth light momentary affliction and says when you compare it to the eternal weight of glory, it, you can't even compare it. And then he says, as we, as believers in Christ, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're perishing. They're falling away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's where our hope is. But for our temporal life on earth, so Paul's talking about that eternity but for our temporal life on earth, Jesus came not just to save us, but to transform us as we battle and work through life here on earth. And that is called sanctification. That's what it means. So the word sanctification, when you see it in scripture, it means to be set apart and to live according to your new reality. It also means to transform into that which you are called and equipped. So Paul writes this in Romans chapter 1, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, uh, Tyler hit these verses during the second week of this series as well. Paul writes this, I appeal to you therefore, beloved, by the mercies of God, because, God's, because the gospel of Christ is so good and so powerful, by the mercies of God, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, the will, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So look at that word transformed in verse 2 there. The Greek word for transformed there is metamorpheo. I'll give you one guess what English word we get from metamorpheo. It's metamorphosis, okay? Now, I'd tell you that in Jesus, we're all butterflies, but that's a little bit too fluffy for me, if you know me. But that is the idea. We're, we're being transformed by the, by the resurrected Christ in us, by the filling of the Holy Spirit. We are slowly being transformed. And, and I know sometimes it feels like we take one step forward and two steps back. That's part of sanctification. That's part of how we learn about that in the midst of it. But it's the power of Jesus in the flesh, sacrificing for us and making us a new creation. It's in that power that our lives are transformed and we begin to live a life that is worthy of our calling in the gospel. That phrase, worthy of our calling... Or live up to your, or walk in your calling. Those phrases are all over the New Testament letters, whether it was Paul or Peter or whoever. That's the idea, is that we're aspiring to that, and that is sanctification. Now, there are two types of sanctification. I want to get us clear on that. We possess both as Christians. If you are in Christ, you have both of these sanctifications, and it's good to understand them. The first one is what's known as positional sanctification. 
Positional sanctification means that at the moment you become a Christian, at the moment you convert, at the moment you become a follower of Christ. For me, it was June 1987. In that moment, you are forgiven completely and immediately at once. You're forgiven. When God looks at you at that moment and from then on, God sees Christ. He sees righteousness. He sees holiness. That's positional sanctification. You stand in complete justification and righteousness before God. There's nothing for you to do. That's it. You have embraced Jesus. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17, which we looked at last week. Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Positional sanctification. It's Hebrews 10.10. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But there's also practical sanctification. Some people call it progressive sanctification. And that sanctification is the fact that we're all still sinners, but by the filling of the Holy Spirit, by pursuing the will and the wisdom of God, and by the power of the resurrected Christ, we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. So Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 says this, Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That verb there, to be conformed, is an interesting verb. It's, it's a verb that assumes that work is already complete. You are conformed to the image of God's son when you come to him. God sees you that way. But also because we're still living here in this world, it is, the verb is in this continuous present active sense in the sense that we're still working on it. That's the filling of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, for, who is this promise for that God works all things together for good? It's for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. His promise isn't for everybody. It's for those who are in Christ. And I understand, I get this, because verse 28 is troubling to a lot of people. Because there are many times in our lives, you may be going through it right now, where you're, you're in Christ, you know Christ, and the circumstances in your life right now, you're thinking, I have no idea how God is working this together for good for me. Right? We question that. But the problem is we don't know the whole story, and we don't know the backstory, and we don't know where it's going. And we also really, in this world, have no full understanding of what God means by good. Tom, our founding pastor, used to say all the time, if you are in Christ, whatever is happening is for your good and God's glory. That's hard sometimes to swallow. But it's also true. We take that on faith because that's what Scripture teaches us. It's James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds because the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. That's a good thing. It's also Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. So James is not the only crazy one to say, consider it all joy when things are really bad in your life, okay? Paul also says, 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Any of you have been rejoicing in your sufferings lately? Okay. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why would we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Another way that's translated is hope will not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there's this grace that saves, positional sanctification, and there's this grace that empowers us or strengthens us or directs us. That's practical sanctification. And it's the same God giving the grace that both powers and and sanctifies. But we need to understand that the grace that saves always comes with the grace that transforms. There's no such thing as a saving grace without a grace that transforms. They are a package deal. You get them both. Uh, I've mentioned this before. Uh, When I talk to pre-marrieds, when we're working through premarital counseling or whatever you want to call it, one of the things that I try to help the couple see is that they are not marrying a finished product, but rather a work in progress. They have to understand that because everything that's happened up to that point They've been trying to make themselves into a finished product just so that they could get the attention of the other person, right? It's called marketing. That's what courtship is. It's marketing, okay? And by the way, I'm not even even bashing on that. You're all in the marketplace, okay? Not not necessarily for a spouse, but I mean, in, in work, you're in the marketplace. If you don't present yourself well, if you don't present yourself as a finished product in your work, you're not going to get hired, you're not going to get clients, you're not going to get promotions. I get all of that. That's all a good thing. But God also sees us as we really are here and now, and he loves working with us and on us in the midst of that because we are not complete yet. We are in the process of being sanctified, and so... Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he says, and I'm confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithfully completed in the day of Christ Jesus. There's work that's being done. We just read 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul writes, though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. And we just read Romans chapter 8, which tells us that we are being conformed to the image of God's Son, that's sanctification. And and can we just be honest? I mean, we are in church after all. Maybe I should be honest. Most people do desire to do better, right? Is there anything wrong with that? No, it's not a trick question. No. No, everybody desires to do, well, most people desire to do better. Self-improvement is a very popular thing. Well, here you go. If you're looking for self-improvement, the resurrected Christ The filling of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God, even Tony Robbins and CrossFit can't compare to that. You're in good hands with Jesus. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote this. If as God's son, and that if is like it is, if as God's son come in the flesh, Jesus shed his blood to redeem us and cleanse us from sin, and we believe this, rubbing it under Satan's nose whenever he tries to plague us and terrify us with our sins, Satan will soon be beaten. He will be forced to withdraw and stop pestering us. So you've heard me talk about this before. You know, Satan likes to kind of goad us into doing things, and then we're like, okay, cool. 
Uh, and then you do it, and then as soon as you do it, he's over there going, see, you really stink. You're not worthy. You're awful. You, you, you don't know God. See, here you go. Here's what Luther's saying. Luther is saying that when Satan comes that second time right after your sin, you sin, all you got to do is say, I'm in Christ, buddy. You need to blow. And eventually he'll stop pestering us. Now, we finally get to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Let me reread it, and we'll take a few minutes to go through this under the understanding of sanctification. So here's what Peter writes. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the coming of the new Jerusalem. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in, in them of these matters. There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the knowledge, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So the overarching theme of both of Peter's letters, and especially this one, this second letter that he writes, is that he's writing to followers of Jesus who are experiencing persecution and oppression and trouble because they believe in Jesus. That's the only reason they're suffering this oppression and persecution. And so I would say that Peter's letters are especially salient today. And in this short six-verse passage... It is teaching in light of Jesus' returning. He starts by saying that. He's talking about Advent, the second coming, the day of the Lord. So in the 12 preceding verses, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 3, Peter is reassuring his readers that no matter what they face here on earth, they have hope because God sees it, God is just, and Jesus is coming again to usher in his kingdom, to make things right, to bring the new Jerusalem. And in this little passage here that we're looking at, Peter explains that the remedy to the attacks on our faith is found in sanctification. That's the remedy. It's found in this sometimes grueling process of sanctification. Now, why is that? It's because in Peter's sense right here, what he's dealing with is that there are two primary problematic groups of people that Peter exposes in this letter. There are seducers and there are scoffers. Zach, our drummer, said that's a great band name. We should start a band called Seducers and Scoffers. Okay. Anyway, here's the seducers. The seducers are those in the church, those who spread the kind of false doctrinal teaching that leads people to shallow, immoral, self-righteous behavior that should never characterize a Christian. And yes, that happens in churches. And then scoffers, who are also in the church. Scoffers are those who use the fact that Jesus hasn't returned yet in order to justify any behavior, immorality, or worldview that they want. He's not coming, he's never coming, I'm going to do whatever I want. 
let me know when he gets here. It's called licentiousness. They're just taking license with the grace that God has given them, which therefore they don't understand grace. So Peter's answer is, place your faith in the guaranteed promise that Jesus will return and set things right, and in the meantime, while you're here, live in a manner worthy of your calling in the gospel. In other words, be sanctified. It's, it's very similar to Paul's writings. Paul says this in all of his letters. Live your life in a manner worthy of your calling in the gospel. So in verse 13, this is Peter's summary statement that Jesus will return and bring with him the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, in verse 14, he says, be diligent. Be diligent. So at what? At what are we supposed to be diligent, Peter? And he says, living a life in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, that honors the gospel which we have received. Be sanctified. Be set apart. Be different. Don't be odd, necessarily, but be one who pursues the wisdom of God, a life of grace and hope, a life of steadfastness, and he says this too, he adds this little clause, be at peace even though the world offers absolutely no peace. We can be at peace. We have Jesus so we can experience peace in the midst of the storms of this world. Paul calls it a peace that transcends all understanding. So here's what... Here's, here's what Peter is calling us to in this letter. He says, you need to fear God. That's the beginning of all wisdom. You need to seek and pursue God's will. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says the same thing. He just says it differently. He says the way to seek and pursue God's will and wisdom is to make sure that you're filling yourself with the Holy Spirit, that you're living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Peter says... Um, that that we, we also need to understand and be at peace with the sovereignty of God. This is, I've been a Christian a long time now, and it's just been in the last six months. For 35 years, intellectually, I was able to say, yes, I believe in the sovereignty of God. But only for the last six months has it really started to be applied to my life. And I will tell you, I wish I had pursued this way sooner because I would have made way fewer dumb mistakes in my life. Fully understanding and appreciating God's sovereignty. Understanding, as Tom used to say, there is no maverick molecule anywhere in the universe that is outside the purview of God. Understanding that God either causes or allows all things to happen. Understanding that as I said before, it's all for our good and his glory. And we are called to understand that living for the approval of humans, rather than in communion with God and his wisdom, is a foolish endeavor. Let me say that again, because the approval of other human beings is intoxicating. I understand that. I, I would venture to say that the vast majority of people in this room, myself included, we are we are people pleasers. We are living for the approval of other humans. But to do that, thinking that that's somehow going to fulfill us, is a foolish endeavor. We need to be living into the will and the wisdom of God. Kind of let the God chips fall where they may at that point. And then in verses 15 through 17, let me reread it. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of, in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. 
as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Yes, yes, it's true. Jesus is taking a while to return. The Bible says Jesus will return soon. I would like to know how many decades are in a biblical soon. That would help me out. But nobody's going to know. We're told by Jesus. No one knows the day or the hour. He's taking longer to return than we would like. And I am in the camp that would kind of like him to get back here. I would like him to return. I'm a Philippians 1 Christian. It's far better to be with Jesus. You people are very nice, and I love you, but it's far better to be with Jesus, okay? And I do like my life here. On, I really do. I have a very good life, and I'm not complaining very much. <laughs> but I know life with Jesus in the New Jerusalem is going to be so much better. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Heaven... He compares the New Jerusalem. We've never experienced the New Jerusalem. We should want to go there, though. And, and here's how he compares it. This falls way short, but it's pretty good. I think it helps. If you've never flown first class on a commercial airline, and you're sitting back in coach with your knees up around your ears, and the flight attendant comes and says, we have an empty seat in first class, and we need to fill that, would you mind going up there? Are you going to go, no, it sounds awful up there. It smells even worse. I don't want to be up there with all that comfort. Of course we're going to go. Of course we're going to go. It's going to be better. And these, are verse, these verses are also interesting in that Peter acknowledges Paul's depth and scholarship. Remember, in terms of academic acumen, Paul and Peter are the opposite ends of the spectrum. You have to understand that. You, you look at the original writings of Paul versus Peter, and, and uh, nobody wants to translate Peter's letters because the Greek is so bad. It's easier to translate Paul's. And yet he acknowledges that for this simple fisherman that Peter is, he had to work to understand Paul, and he's advocating that you work at it to understand Paul, just like sometimes we need to work at understanding Paul. And he commends Paul's letters and Paul's teaching to us. We should be all over Paul's letters. That's what Peter says. But never allow anyone to use Paul's depth to fool you with fancy but intellectually bankrupt and doctrinally heretical arguments and worldviews. And yes, people will do that, and they especially do it in the church, unfortunately. So beware. Be diligent not to allow yourself to be carried away with the errors of lawless people. Even John in his letter says, you need to test the spirits. You need to check stuff out. You need to be careful of what people who have a teaching platform are teaching. And then verse 18 is the culmination. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow. Be sanctified in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Pursue a life that both receives and passes on the grace of Jesus. The love, the mercy, the peace, and the discipline that he gives us. And pursue a life that knows him, knows his teaching, knows his encouragement and his correction, and knows the promises and the hope that he gives us. That's sanctification. Paul David Tripp writes this. The church is not a theological classroom. 
It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others. In Christ, this last four weeks, God comes in the flesh by way of his sacrifice. We are new creations called to be sanctified. Be glad he came and be glad he's coming again. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, we thank you for your word and its truth. But your word and its truth points us to the reality of who Jesus is. And while we celebrate his birth, and that's a wonderful and beautiful thing, there was a purpose for his birth. There was a purpose for his incarnation. And that was to go to the cross and die an executioner's death in order that we might have salvation. God, that's the greatest gift we've ever been given. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our lives. Those of us who don't know you, I, I pray that you would just move in their hearts and their minds to understand who you are and to embrace you. And those of us who do know you, God, that we would be moved to live that life that is worthy of our calling in the gospel. That we would know that sanctification is tough and challenging, but it's also for our good and your glory. Give us the courage to be able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, before we move into our last song and, and reflection and communion time, I want to remind you that Christmas Eve is this Friday night. We're going to be gathering at 3.30 and at 5, about a 55-minute uh, service each time. Uh, candlelight service. Be glad to see you here at that time. And now as we uh, listen to and or sing this last song, we're going to come and we're going to take communion together. The communion servers are ready for you to pass out the kits. When you enter that aisle and come down here and accept the elements, you are confessing your need for Jesus and celebrating that you have him. You're proclaiming that you are a part of the gospel, God's good news for sinners. That on that night, after Jesus spent all that time with his disciples, when he was betrayed, his body was broken for us. That's the wafer, that's the bread. And his blood was shared for us. That's the blood of the new covenant, the juice, so that we might be reconciled to the Father. And he invites us to this table, not necessarily out of obedience, though that is a good thing, but he does so because he wants us to understand that we're in relationship with him. We are in communion with him. He initiated it. He loves us, and he has drawn us to him. And that is a privilege and an honor to be able to do that. So let's do that now.
Amen. What a wonderful service. Thank you all for being here with us. We hope to see you on Friday for Christmas Eve. As we go, I'd like to read this from 2 Peter. This was from our scripture reading. I thought it's just perfect to send us away. Peter writes this, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Go in peace, church. Live all of life offers each Jesus. We'll see you Friday.